Welcome to the new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live. On WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Our opening concert of the season began with a beautiful and very luminous work by a young American composer named Missy Mazzoli. Missy lives and works in New York City, uh, is a pianist, and has done all sorts of jobs, as have so many young composers, to sustain their composing careers. Uh, she now runs a wonderful festival in New York called the Mata Festival of Young Composers, which was started by Philip Glass. And this is a work that I heard a few years ago and thought was just a very radiant and beautiful piece. And uh, when I thought to and our season opener with Sibelius' Seventh Symphony, this piece came to my mind because in a certain way, I guess it seemed somehow to share a similar sound world to that of Sibelius. So we begin the concert with the new work, These Worlds in Us, not that new actually, from 2006, and we end it with Sibelius' Seventh Symphony, and in between we have two glorious concerti featuring the legendary pianist Garrick Olson. The title of These Worlds in Us comes from a James Tate poem called The Lost Pilot, written about his father's death in World War II. And let me just read you the end of this poem. It's such a beautiful and touching and, dare I say, sad poem. My head cocked toward the sky, I cannot get off the ground. And you passing over again, fast, perfect, and unwilling, to tell me that you are doing well or that it was a mistake that placed you in that world and me in this, or that misfortune placed these worlds in us. Missy dedicated this piece to her father, who was himself a soldier in Vietnam. Fortunately, he survived that ordeal, came home, lived in the suburbs, and had two lovely children. And as she described when she was visiting with us before the concert, he never talked about his experiences in the war. It was kind of an area that was not ever discussed. And it was only in 2006 that he began, for some reason, to just really open up about his experiences in Vietnam. And so when Missy sat down to write her first orchestra piece... She thought about her father, and she came upon this beautiful poetry that I just read to you, and she decided to write a piece in his honor and inspired by those lines of the poem. It's a a rather brief one-minute work that features a, a very haunting and beautiful melody that just keeps coming back over and over again in various incarnations. Uh, She talked a little bit when she was with us about how one of the influences for it was her work when she was in college in Boston at Boston University. She was a member of the gamelan group at MIT. Gamelan is, of course, Indonesian music, and it's a a type of orchestra that's put together entirely of xylophones and gongs and such, and uh, very fast, repetitive rhythms that sort of keep going and developing, but very gradually. And she also talked about partners in this gamelan group, how every player is, is paired with someone else and they sort of fill in the notes for each other. And so I think she tried in the piece at certain points to emulate the sound or to conjure the sound of that gamelan world. At the same time, it's a rather introspective and and haunting work uh, that begins and ends, interestingly, with two of the percussionists playing an instrument called the melodica. 
which you may have seen. It's a, a little, it almost looks like a tiny accordion-like instrument with a little keyboard that you actually blow into, almost like a, an ocarina or a, a recorder. And uh, she said that when she was first in New York, she found it cumbersome to carry her piano around with her, so she took to bringing a little melodica wherever she went and would play it. And she said it has this very touching harmonica-like sound, kind of out of tune but very beautiful. And so at the beginning and the end, you'll hear this kind of out of tune, little uh, whimsical chord being sustained, and that's the two percussionists intentionally playing that on the melodica. Uh, again, a beautiful, brief work inspired by her father's experience as a soldier in Vietnam, These Worlds in Us by Missy Mazzoli. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was Missy Mazzoli's 2006 composition, These Worlds in Us. Uh, It was the opening work on the Albany Symphony's opening concert of the 2009-10 season. We followed it with a a pair of concertos, one on each half. Uh, First, an absolutely dazzling concerto that I must say, I think, none of us had ever encountered before. It's by the great uh, 20th century Czech composer Boislav Martinu, who was born in what's now the Czech Republic uh, in Politka, Bohemia, on December 8, 1890, and who died in Switzerland in 1959. Martinu was a, a very fine violinist who played in the Czech Philharmonic as a young man, as a very young man, just as Dvorak had been a violist in that orchestra a couple of generations before. And uh, when uh, Martineau was 33 years old, he immigrated to France, to Paris, to study with Albert Roussel, one of the leading composers of the day, and and was very much uh, influenced by and in contact with Stravinsky and Ravel and uh, Satie and all the the French leading figures of the avant-garde. Eventually, during the Second World War in 1941, he made his way to the United States and spent the last part of his life primarily in the States, uh, and composed a great number of works, including his six symphonies and many of his five piano concertos here in the U.S., many of them actually while living in the Berkshires, so right in our neighborhood. Uh, His works were played by many or most of the major American orchestras during his life, as well as around the world, and yet at the same time, he had a very hard time after his immigration to the U.S., uh, as did so many immigrants from Europe during the Second World War. He didn't really speak the language well. He didn't have any money. Uh, He had to sort of rebuild his career uh, under very difficult circumstances. And yet this piece from 1956 was, a, I think, a very successful one, even at its premiere. It was premiered by the New York Philharmonic with Stokowski conducting and the great Czech pianist Rudolf Firkushny, who was a, an untiring champion of Marginu's music as the soloist. And it's called Incantation. It's in two movements uh, in a very free, flexible form. And, and as I said, a very big, brash, colorful piece I don't think it's been played much at all in this country since that premiere. It's often played in the Czech Republic, where Martinu's music is often played and and also recorded. And yet Martinu is one of these, I think, towering figures of the 20th century who, outside of his homeland of the Czech Republic, is largely uh, ignored, sadly. So we were very proud to be able to present this piece with Garrick Olson, uh, who brought the project to us and proposed that we do the piece. The work begins with this very sort of, well, not overly dissonant, but very strong two-note motive, just an, a B-flat and a C, uh, what's called a major second. And you'll hear that this this one-step motive just permeates the entire piece, both movements. Uh, and yet the piece is very big and brash and colorful. I, I find his music so appealing because I do think it's this fascinating combination of this effortless Czech invention that he shares with Dvorak and Smetana before him and Josef Suk, who had been an early champion of his, this wonderful sense of, of invention and of melodic gift, but combined with this very interesting 1920s, 1930s European uh, French modernist Stravinskyan approach to 
music. Both movements are very free and are meant to conjure the idea of magic through incantation. So now, uh, Garrick Olson, as soloist, performing with the Albany Symphony, Boislav Martinu's Concerto from 1956, Incantation, Piano Concerto Number 4. This is the Conductor's Notes Podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. When Garrick Olson proposed the idea of doing the Martinu Fourth Piano Concerto with the Albany Symphony with me, I was delighted to oblige. He's a, an artist who's had a long, proud association with the Albany Symphony uh, and used to appear here very, very regularly when he was a, a very young man. He's still a a young man, I think. Uh, during Julius Hedgie's tenure, he was, I think, Mr. Hedgie's absolute favorite artist and came a number of times. For whatever reason, through scheduling challenges and, and such, uh, we haven't been able to get him here until now, and so we're so delighted to be able to share the stage with him on this concert. So when he called me and, and uh, suggested the uh, the Martinu Fourth Concerto, I was not only delighted to oblige, but I asked him whether there might be another concerto that he'd like to partner it with, and he suggested his, his favorite Mozart piano concerto, or I shouldn't say his favorite, but the one that he most likes to bring around. It's, again, not a particularly well-known one compared to the, the most famous ones from the last 10 or so. It's the Piano Concerto Number 14 in E-flat major. Uh, it's a work that Mozart composed just at the beginning of that glorious period. It sort of ushers in this period of his 12 greatest piano concertos with which he, he mastered the form for all times uh, in the early 1780s, not too long after his appearance in Vienna or his, his move from Salzburg to Vienna. He actually wrote it not for himself, which makes it somewhat unusual. He wrote it for his student. He had a beloved young student, Barbara von Ployer, or Babette von Ployer, as she was known. And uh, she must have been a favorite of Mozart's because he actually wrote two concerti for her. Uh, And what's fascinating about this concerto is because he wasn't writing it for himself, he wrote out in great detail the ornaments in the piano part, little turns and extra uh, expression notes that normally he probably would not have indicated in the piano part of the score. He simply would have done because he knew how to do that. But since he was writing for another pianist, he wrote very, very detailed ornaments. So it gives us and gives scholars in particular a great insight into how Mozart probably performed his own other concertos that aren't so heavily ornamented. And Garrick Olson does a beautiful job of of not only ornamenting the slow movement, but making it extremely expressive and evocative and uh, quite touchingly beautiful. The work is like all of Mozart piano concertos, I believe, in three movements. The first movement is a little unusual in that it's a, it's a movement in 3-4 time, which doesn't happen too often in Mozart's first movements. It's kind of a dramatic piece that begins in E-flat major and very shortly moves to C minor, a uh, rather Sturm und Drang, storm and stress kind of piece. The Andantino, the slow movement, as I suggested, is a, a beautiful introspective work with lots of gorgeous piano writing. And the last movement is, in a certain way, the most arresting of all the movements. It begins with the first violins playing really what sounds like a Baroque uh, fugue theme. And in fact, Mozart had sort of just begun to become reacquainted with the towering works of J.S. Bach. He knew a great bit of music by the sons of Bach, but he didn't know all that much by Bach himself. And he had come into contact with a number of works by Bach and was so captivated by his mastery and brilliance and began to integrate lots of Baroque style, lots of counterpuntal lines running against each other into his music, and also was wrestling at this time with this idea of how to make the last movements of concertos not simply casual toss-offs, but to make them really have some substance and balance in a way to create balance with the, the opening movements of the concerti. So this is a a great example of Mozart finding very creative ways through the use of counterpoint and Baroque techniques and and fugue and canon, where he has lines repeating against each other at different durations and such, of his 
creating finales, last movements, that have really great power and strength and structural solidity. So uh, at the same time, very uh, charming and witty finale. Also, I should mention that the cadenzas are Mozart's own. Here now, Mozart's Piano Concerto Number 14, Kirschel 449, played by Garrick Olson, pianist with the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. That was Mozart's Piano Concerto Number no. 14, Kirschel 449, in E-flat major, played by pianist Garrick Olson with the Albany Symphony. That work was the penultimate work on our concert, and now we turn to the final work on the program. For our opening concert, and given the interesting challenge of having two concertos, one on each half of the program, I wanted to end with one of my favorite pieces, but something that was not too long, because I didn't want the program to be overly long. And I decided to turn to a piece that we had done some years ago. I don't know if it's seven or eight years ago, but one of my all-time favorite and most dramatic and beautiful pieces, Sibelius's final symphony, the Seventh Symphony in C major. This is a rather unusual work in Sibelius's oeuvre, First of all, because it's kind of half the length of most of his other symphonies. You know, symphonies tend to last in Sibelius's time around the 35 to 45-minute mark, and this is a mere 23-minute work. It is also in just one movement, so there are no stops within the texture of the movement. But at the same time, within this piece, there are incredible dramatic contrasts that evolve. And that's what's so fascinating about the piece. There's a wonderful quote that I, I love to read that's reputed to have been said by, by Sibelius, I, I believe it was, in this very famous discussion he had with Gustav Mahler in 1907. Mahler had just said something like, you know, a symphony should embrace the whole world and should have the whole world inside of it. And Sibelius answered in, in what I think of as a very Scandinavian, Nordic way. His response was, what matters in a symphony is the severity of form and the profound logic creating an inner connection between all the motifs. So what Sibelius was working toward during his symphonic career, which spanned a great number of years, was working toward the most concise and succinct, powerful utterance that he could, using the most minimal materials to create some incredibly powerful utterance. And I must say that in the Seventh Symphony, I really believe he achieved his objective. Initially, it was titled Fantasia Sinfonica, Symphonic Fantasy, and I think he thought of it almost as like a special kind of piece, since it was in one movement and short, one continuous piece, almost like a tone poem combined with symphonic form. And it doesn't have anything like a typical four movements, even within the one-movement form. It's very episodic, and, and there's this incredible motif that reappears three times in which the trombone comes in and plays a very dramatic, kind of slow, majestic fanfare over the entire orchestra. And just soars over the orchestra. The piece begins very, very slowly and uh, very introspectively. And there's a gorgeous hymn that sort of gets going. Sibelius had been become very much interested in the music of Palestrina and the Renaissance masters, choral masters. I believe this this hymn that starts in the violas and comes uh, sort of unfolds gradually through the entire string section is very much influenced by his study of of Renaissance polyphony. And then that leads to the first dramatic statement of the trombone theme, played brilliantly by our trombonist Karna Millen. 
then that leads to a, a faster section, and then the motto comes back, and then actually there's a very extended scherzo, a lively dance movement, and then once again at the very end of the piece there's an incredible peroration uh, using all the materials of the opening. One of the aspects of this piece that I find so dazzling is that the piece evolves so gradually, and this was absolutely Sibelius's intent, that one never is aware of the transitions. For example, one theme, the trombone theme, will turn into the accompaniment of the next passage. And so you'll hear it kind of transform itself into an accompaniment, and all of a sudden you'll be in a whole different kind of music that's evolved out of the previous music. Also, uh, in studying the thematic subject of of the piece, he uses, again, the most minimal a thematic materials, an, an ascending scale, a descending scale, and again, a two-note motive, this ba bom, this D to a C that the trombone motto starts with. And using these basic kind of ur elements, much in the way Beethoven did in his own time and place, Sibelius fashions an incredible, gigantic architectural structure. And uh, it's almost like, I was saying to some of the musicians, it's almost like studying Kabbalah, the, the Jewish book of mysticism. It, it's said that they, the, the rabbis wouldn't even teach Kabbalah to anybody but the, the most mature scholars because you would get so deep into the mysticism of it that you could, it could drive you insane. It could drive you to, 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 to death. And in a way, the more one studies the Sibelius and the more one looks at the motifs, the more concise and succinct and, and unified and bound together they are. Having said that, in terms of the enjoyment of the piece, there's another whole way to listen to the piece, leaving aside all of Sibelius's austere statements about structure and form and, and uh, simplicity. And that is that, like so much of Sibelius's music, this piece just evokes the openness and the purity of the natural world, the beauty of that world in which he lived in Finland on his lake. Uh, and so one can hear it purely as a nature piece. Sibelius never talked about programmatic elements in his symphonies, or almost never did. And yet there is this sense in this piece of his conjuring all of the natural world in these brief 23 minutes of music. So now the final work on the Albany Symphony's opening concert, Sibelius's monumental Seventh Symphony, performed by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. 